0: Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, he frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to
1: be with you this morning. My name is Justin, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And for, for those of you who are just joining us, we are in the middle of a sermon series where we are studying why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. And I've heard from several of you that this series has been eye-opening for you, a little bit of an awakening that you never knew why our service took on the shape that it did, that it's a lot different than any other church you've ever been to or a lot different than anything else you do during the week. Well, that's exactly why we're taking the time to work through why we do what we do piece by piece of our Sunday morning gathering. If you remember, one of the first things that we realized in this sermon series was that our gathering is primarily about God and only secondarily About us. According to scripture, there's only one way that man can approach God and enter into his throne room and worship him rightly, and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ takes a certain shape or has a certain shape. And therefore, if our service is to be gospel centered, our service needs to take on the shape of the gospel. And one of the benefits of that is then the, the, the gospel itself will actually shape us or the gospel will actually form us. That's why our gathering looks the way that it does. It is formed by the gospel and is meant to form us in the gospel. Now here's, the, here's what I've discovered over the past 10 years of doing this. You will only take this as seriously as you take the scriptures themselves? I'm gonna ask you, and you don't have to answer this out loud, please don't. (laughs) How seriously do you take the scriptures? For most people in our society today, the scriptures are nothing more than moral fables meant to teach us how to be nice people. They're just another approach to metaphysical questions or you know what's going on in the universe and who am I what's spiritual etc most people in our culture do not believe the scriptures to be what they themselves declare themselves to be the divinely inspired words of god himself that are meant to be our only rule of life and faith cornelius van til a dutch american philosopher and theologian from the 20th century once said this, this book is authoritative in everything it addresses and it addresses everything. That means if we want to obey God, if we want to live the good life, if we want to build a church that honors God or a family that honors God or a society that honors God, we must com- com- we must consistently go back to the scriptures and reform our faith and practices according to the word of God and not according to our cultural desires and wants and wishes. So what we're doing through this series is we're going back to the Bible week in and week out and we're we're asking the Bible and God himself, what does God want us to do when we come together on Sunday morning? And the overarching answer is (laughs) worship God, right? But then there's some nuts and bolts to that. He gives us some specifics on the right way to worship the right God or the right way to worship the real God. And one of the things that you've been with us for a while, we saw how God calls us in to worship Himself, what the pastoral welcome does. It kind of sets the tone of the service. And Rob did a great job last week of talking about why we confess our sins and why we read the absolution week in and week out. And one of the things that we do every time we're together is we sing to God. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Why do we sing? Why do we sing? Now, listen, I've never preached about singing before. And as I got into studying it, I realized, oh, man, this could be a whole series. Uh, but I've only got one week. And so what I decided to do is I'm not giving you 10 reasons why we sing. I'm just going to go to Psalm 33, and I'm going to give us three reasons why we sing from Psalm 33, and we'll let it be, be enough for today, okay? So I'm not exhausting this topic, but I'm giving us three reasons why we sing from Psalm Psalm 33. And before we jump into that, let me pray and ask God's blessing upon us this morning. Father, we need your word to straighten us out. We need you to direct us. We need your word to be the light to our path. We need you to, to direct our steps. There's a way that seems right into man and that way leads unto death. And we need you to interrupt that path of destruction. That we are all hell bent on following if left to ourself. Would you interrupt that? Would you allow your sheep to hear your voice this morning? Would you allow me to teach truth, Father? Would you allow me to train some disciples in this room this morning? Would you really help me and think through my mind as I'm a fallen man myself and uh, I need your help and I need your guidance. Would you help think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, Father God? Would it be all of you and none of me? Would your people hear your voice? And would you lead us to worship you rightly this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so Psalm 33 I see at least three reasons why we sing when we come together each week. Number one, I'm just gonna give you all three and then we'll break them down. Number one, we were created by God to sing to God. Number two, God's words and God's works demand it. And three, singing to God is worshipful warfare. That's where we're going today. We're gonna look in detail at each one. Number one, we sing to God because we were created by God to sing to God. Look at verses one through three in Psalm 33 with me this morning. Shout for joy. Now, first off, I'm just gonna say, thank the Lord he begins like this because most of my kids can sing. My wife, she sings up here a lot of times. My wife is an amazing singer. I can't sing, okay? But guess what? I can shout for days, all right? So I'm gonna include that in singing this morning. Some people sing, some people just talk loudly, and that's me, okay? Shout for joy in the Lord. Now I can do some shouting. Oh, you righteous. Praise befits the upright, Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Now that's an instrument we don't use anymore. Make melody to him with the harp. Another one we don't use anymore. Uh, Of 10 strings, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. We've got the strings up here. We've got some guitars going on up here this morning. All right, so this psalm begins with a call for the congregation, that's the righteous or the upright, to worship God with music and enthusiasm, right? Don't come in dragging, right? Shout for joy, he says. Don't come in, I mean, it's not always gotta be a funeral. Come in somber, right? Sometimes you come in and, you know, you're playing skillfully on the strings, right? I love when the bass comes back up here. I'm like, yeah, I like that right? Play skillfully on the strings, right? Praising God here says this, praise befits the upright. Now, we don't talk like that. What it means is it's fitting to do, all right? It's fitting to do. When you use a fork to eat, it is fitting. When you use a hammer to drive a nail, it is fitting, If you try to use a fork to drive a nail, it is not fitting, it won't go well for you, right? What the psalmist is saying is here is God, and actually we're told in... Is it Zephaniah or Zechariah, I can't remember, that God is a singing God, that God even sings over us, that God is a, a God who sings, and he's made us in his image, and so one of the things we're made to do is glorify God and enjoy him forever. One of the ways we do that is through singing back to him. So when we, when we do what we were created to do, it actually brings joy to us. Just like when you learn how to use a hammer and you can drive a 16-penny nail with one swing, that thing, it's fitting to do that. It sings, that hammer sings when you do that, right? When you literally sing to God, you do what you're created to do and that results in joy in your own self. That's why we enjoy to sing to God, all right? And the psalmist here calls on the people of God to sing a new song to the Lord because that's what they were created to do. Now, it's interesting because if you, if you know this, the, the book of Psalms, and there's a lot of Psalms in the Bible, it's a big chunk of your Bible, the book of Psalms was meant to be sung. The Psalms were basically the hymn book of the Old Testament. And of Jesus himself. Two of the gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark, both record Jesus singing a hymn after sharing the Passover with his disciples before going to the Mount of Olives where he was betrayed unto death. The hymns that would have been sung would have been the Hallel. So during the Passover, they would sing the Hallel, Psalms 113 to Psalms 118, and they would sing them from memory. It's a lot of scripture they had memorized. Now this is so moving to me. Here are some of the words that Jesus would have sung as he walked to the Mount of Olives. So get this picture in your mind. He's already been betrayed by Judas. He's already had the Last Supper. And now he's walking to the Mount of Olives. He's going... To the Garden of Gethsemane, literally God's about to put the weight of sin of, the, of mankind upon his shoulders, and he's going to be betrayed and then ultimately beaten in a mock trial and then crucified, okay? And on the way there, he's singing with his disciples, more than likely, Psalm 118, okay? Because that's the end, the last psalm of the Hallel. okay? Here's some of the words of the Hillel, of Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus is singing. God's love is going to last forever. Don't worry. Verses five through seven. Out of my distress, I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. I wish I could sing this to you, but I can't. What can man do to me? Crucify you. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The Lord is my strength and my song, He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us and rejoice and be glad in it. And this one shakes me to my core every time I read it. Verses 27 through 29, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Festal where we get our word festival. So think about the Old Testament sacrifices and they would bind an animal to it and they would sacrifice it for the sins of the people. Jesus is singing out here, bind the festal sacrifice with cords and the horns of the altar knowing that he is that sacrifice and he'll be bound not just with cords but with nails To the cross. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Here, one of the darkest moments in human history, Jesus shows us what it looks like to do what mankind was created to do. Even in the midst of a fallen and broken world, he sang to God his strength. So we sing to God because we were created to sing to God. Now the second point from our text this morning is that we sing because God's words and God's works demand it. Look at Psalm 33 verse four. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. Now here's one way to say this. God has given us two books to understand life and everything there is. One is he's given us his word right here and two, he's given us Creation. He's given us nature. Okay? Now, here is the reality God's word tells us a certain, tells us a lot of things. One thing that tells us the story of how we came to be. This word begins like this In the beginning, God. But, nope, that's we're starting right there. I have questions. Yep. In the beginning, God, that's what exists in the beginning. God himself as a Trinitarian spirit, father, son, Holy Spirit, they exist eternally happy together, eternally satisfied, eternally in love with one another. They don't need anything and out of their overabundant supernatural love, they create, okay? He speaks creation into existence, Okay, now, and then with that, here we go, he also tells us in the the next couple chapters in Genesis one, or Genesis three, that mankind, his created beings, that we were created in his image to mirror him, that God is a rational God and makes things in certain way. He made us rational creatures that we could understand creation. However, we reject God and who he is and we disobeyed him and therefore, Mankind and all of creation has been subject to a curse, okay? So everything is now fallen. Everything is now bent. Everything is now broken. Everything is now infected and affected by sin, okay? Now, here's, the, here's why I'm bringing this all up. This is the predominant worldview. This was the predominant worldview in the West, okay? Out of, because of Christianity, this worldview gave birth to the scientific method, Okay? God is a rational God. He's created a rational universe. We are rational beings in his image. Therefore, we can understand his creation, the second book, through rational means, like the scientific method. But what happens in the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century is mankind decides to divorce themselves from the God of the Bible. We don't believe in the God of the Bible, all we believe in rationality. Even though They have no source to act. They have no foundation to believe in rationality and the matrix teaches you just this good, right? How can you trust your brain if it's just electrical impulses going through your brain? How can you trust your feelings if it's just electrical impulses going through your brain? (gasps) Right. That's the reality. That's science divorced from a creator, a rational God who created things. Now, here's the problem. When you divorce yourself from God and you divorce yourself from scriptures, scripture is meant to be the lenses that we understand creation through. We can't just pick up creation where it is right now and, and say, oh, this is how things are because creation has been cursed, right? So we're studying a cursed creation right now. And this is where our scientific materialism and the worldviews that follow that go off. And you get things like survival of the fittest and, and, nihilism like there is no moral values anymore there is no universal truths anymore right because we're trying to study creation without the lenses of scripture that we need to understand creation okay so he says here God's word and God's works now we have to kind of hold these things together the scriptures and creation Both of them testify to God's power and might and goodness, but we need God's word to help us interpret the creation, okay? So God's word are the glasses we need to look through in order to rightly understand God's creation. Now, these two realities are intimately connected. God's word also works, okay? God's word is powerful, It creates what it demands. God's word makes things happen. When the psalmist says here in verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the breath of his mouth, all their host. And in verse nine, when he says, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. The psalmist is drawing our attention back to creation as it is described in Genesis 1. God created all there is through his word. That's how powerful he is. But God did not create the world and then back away from it. So the, 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 the analogy of this is the great watchmaker. A watchmaker makes a watch and then sits it on the shelf and that thing can function without his involvement at all. That's the God of deism. That just God kind of created it all, but now he's completely removed from it and it's just everything is operating on its own. Well, that's not what scripture teaches. The psalmist here teaches us that God is still intimately connected with his creation, governing and ruling over it to bring us to our expected end. So again, we go back to scripture. Scripture tells us we were created good, we fell into sin, and what's going to make the world right again? Only a redeemer, only a savior. And Jesus Christ, the son of God, the word who put on flesh and dwelt among us, God's word in action. He came and he lived the perfect life that we failed to live and died a substitutionary death that we deserve for our many sins. And purchased for us our total salvation and he was resurrected to prove that God accepted the sacrifice for our sins and he's glorified right now at the right hand of the father and he's coming again in the fourth act of the story which is restoration to renew and to restore us back into a right relation with God all of creation not just us we're talking animals we're talking whatever is broken when it comes to physics and everything else the all of creation all the laws everything is getting restored back to god this is the story of scripture this enables us to interpret our reality rightly and god is intimately involved in this bringing us to that completion bringing us bringing the kingdom here right so look at verse 10 The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as a heritage. Look at this, verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Now, I've already mentioned what happened in the 17th, 18th, 19th, even the 20th century. Now, this this time of human history is often called the Enlightenment, okay? It's where mankind pushed away from God and decided to trust their reason, their intellect, and science to interpret all of life for them. It's actually reason, science, and technology. That's our new trinity. Our new trinity is reason, science, and technology. And we believe if we trust in human reason and we trust in science and we trust in technology, here it is, humankind can usher in Utopia, a time where we will all hold, the nations of the world will hold hands and sing Kumbaya with one another and we don't need religion and we don't need God. Imagine a world without God and without wars and without all these, these science and reason and technology will get us there. Well, God frustrates the plans of the people the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Here's what happened with that Enlightenment worldview. And it's really a humanistic worldview. You can call it modernism. There's a lot of different names it goes by. Here's what happened World War I happened. The most enlightened people on the planet went to war with one another. Here's what happened again World War II happened. The most intellectually advanced society on the planet was Germany at the time, and they used that intellect, they used that science, they used that reason, they used that technology to do horrible things in the name of science and human flourishing and all these different things. So that, that, that modernist worldview kind of took a death blow, but then it's this plan of humans that just won't die. And then all of a sudden it starts rising up on the scenes again, and, and we, we start trusting. It's just, it's, it's reason and science and technology, and then what happens? And then 9 11 happens. And 9 11, people start, what Because in that worldview, there is no such thing as evil. Because they're all moral values are equal and equivalent. Your truth is not my truth. We all get different kinds of truth. And then 9-11 happens and we realize we have to have a category for this. And what happened? Our nation flooded back to church. Church has an answer to the evil in the world. Why does evil exist? Because sin exists. What's the answer to evil? Jesus Christ, God's son, the redeemer. He's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Mankind can't usher in utopia on their own because we're all sinful and we're all broken. And yet, here we are today, 20 years after 9-11, and it seems we're in the same place again. the psalmist thousands of years ago looks at all the kingdoms and all the plans and all the plans of the people and he's like, the Lord confuses them all. Only God's word stands forever. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So this is what's going on here that when we survey the work of God's creation, and the work of his providence governing history we should sing with the psalmist in verse 8 let all the earth fear the lord let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him so we sing to god because we were created to and we sing to god because his word and his works demand it think about this if you've ever summited a 14er a 14,000 foot peak in the united states right it's an awesome experience. It's hard work. You get to the top. And when you get to the top, I've never heard anyone that went with me or anyone that have met up there, get up there and go, mankind is awesome. <laughs> I feel so huge right now. No, you get up there and you see peaks and peaks and peaks and peaks and peaks, and, peaks, and you're like, oh my God. He spoke this into existence. I am an ant on this little hill in his perspective. Now, Paul tells us in the New Testament in two different places in Colossians and Ephesians that this should affect the way that we worship him when we come together. Colossians 3.16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, that God's word should be forming the way that we worship and we come together, we should be singing to him and we should be singing his words back to him. He also tells the church in Ephesus, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so when we sing to God, we do what we were created to do, and when we sing to God, we do what God's words and God's works demand, right. The third point from our text this morning is that when we sing to God, we sing to God because singing together is worshipful warfare. First off, let let me start in verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven... He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So God sees us this morning. He says this. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his strength, his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue what's he doing here? seems weird. He's talking about worship. He's talking about singing. And all of a sudden, he's talking about kings and warriors and war horses and battles. What is going on here? Well, Old Testament scholar, Trimper Longman says that this psalm was most likely written and sung before battle. It's a war song for God's people. Now, if you know your Bible, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you see this kind of principle happen all the time. And it's kind of a fascinating principle, and it's kind of a really cool principle, that often on the eve of battle or right before the great battles, God would cause his people in to worship him first right? And then God wants to prove a point sometimes. And so several different times, God says people would come and they'd be afraid. There'd be uh, armies surrounding them, like mighty armies. They'd be outnumbered. And God would respond in a very weird way. He would, one time he told Gideon, oh, you've got too many people. Gideon's like, don't think that's true. He's like, well, nope, send everybody who's afraid home. 10,000 people leave. And then he whittles it down until eventually he's like, take them down to the creek and whoever drinks like a dog and laps it up, that's your army. First off, if evolution was true, these are the ones way back on the evolutionary chart, okay? The ones who leaned out and licked the water like a dog and don't use their hands, Come on, you know, sophisticated people slurp the water like this. But if God says, nope, everybody who laps the water like a dog, that's your army. What is it? What happens here? What happens here is his army gets dwindled down to 300 people, 300 people. Now, what's the purpose of doing this? The purpose of doing this was to teach them to trust not in their strength, but in the God who was their strength, the God who was the warrior, the God who would protect them. We see this in 2 Chronicles 20 as well. Where they're they're terribly outnumbered, and their enemies are about to come in, and they have no hope for. They can't trust in the war horse. They can't trust in their army. And so, what do they do? They praise God instead, and God defeats them. God throws their army into confusion and defeats them through their praise. Now, this you're afraid, right? This is on the night you're about to go into battle, and God tells you, just sing. you're like, no, I'm pretty sure I have this sword for a reason. I, I kind of trust in this to defeat enemies more than I trust in singing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's your problem. Your problem is you trust in yourself in your own power and your own strength, and you don't trust the God who governs all, who sits sovereignly in the heavens right now, looking down upon you, and he can move pieces around, and the Heart of the king is a stream in the hand of the Lord that I can do whatever I want to do and and victory lies in my decision, not in your own ability. That's what he's trying to teach them. That's why the psalmist says here, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue the scholar Longman says, military success is not found in strength of numbers or in superior armaments, but rather in faith in God, the warrior, who is able to deliver them from death through battle, famine, or any other disaster. It's interesting here. So what are these warriors singing? I mean, this is what they're singing. What are these? They sing right before they're gonna be, I mean, their life is on the line, Right? They're thinking, this, is, this could be my last day on earth. This could be my last hour on earth. And what do they sing before they go off into battle? Here's what they sing, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. First off, we're talking deliver their soul from death. We're not just talking, I might die here, but I know God's got me in the afterlife if that's what's gonna happen. I can trust in there, but keep reading. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Can you imagine singing this? You've probably got a sword in one hand, a shield in the other, and you're saying, I don't trust in this, I trust in God. God is our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O oh Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So here we see that singing to God is worshipful warfare. It is meant to draw our eyes up off our current situations, off our current problems, our current fears and our enemies and lock onto a faithful all-powerful, all-righteous, sovereign God that is meant to fill us with the courage we need to remain faithful in our day-to-day lives, no matter how difficult they become. What do you need as you're going off into battle? You need a glimpse of the big sovereign God who is for you and has place to set steadfast love on you. That's what you need. Now, let me clarify something. See, Karl Marx once said that religion is the opiate of the masses. And by this, he meant that religion tends to get people to think or to focus on the afterlife. And that makes them a little more docile in their present circumstances. He believed the reason why the poor didn't rise up in revolution against the rich because their religion actually held them back. Well, that may be true for most religions, but that is not true for Christianity. Christianity doesn't teach this at all. We don't ignore our problems and worship God and then get some kind of high that enables us to just sit back and endure them. No, singing to God in the midst of our fears fills us with courage to face them head on. They didn't sit down and sing to God and let the warriors come in and just take over the city. They sang to God and buckled on their, their shields and, and took their sword and went out and fought battles. Now, I was reminded of this yesterday as we were celebrating the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the story of a man named Todd Beamer and of United Flight 93. and This was getting shared around and they made a movie out of it. It was getting shared around a lot of different places. Now, if you didn't know, Todd Beamer was a Christian. Todd Beamer um, went to Wheaton, actually, graduated from Wheaton. And Todd Beamer was on hijacked plane flight number three. And when, they hi- when the terrorists hijacked the plane snuck away and called his wife and, he, and then eventually called 911 and the operator told him that you are the fourth plane that we know of that has been hijacked. The other ones have been crashed into all, all the different locations and, based, and he gave them flight patterns and all this kind of stuff, which direction they were going and they worked out, it looks like you're headed to the White House. Ty Beamer realized what that meant for him called his wife, told her he loved her, did all the stuff, was, was taught, had a 15 minute conversation with this 911 operator and eventually gets to the place where he realized what he has to do and he says, will you pray with me? And he prays the Lord's prayer and Psalm 23, he knows he's w- walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He will fear no evil. And he says, Jesus This is on the flight record. This is on the record of the call, the 911 call. Jesus, help me. God, help me. Guys, let's roll. See, in this scientific, humanistic worldview that that many of our society have, we don't know what to do with evil. We can't call evil evil. We don't know what to do with evil. Well, a Christian knows what to do with evil. And you don't just sit there and pray in your seat and let what happened happens. No, Todd Beamer got up in his Christian faith and believed God and believed God for the afterlife and attacked the attackers on that plane and prevented them from flying into the White House. Knowing his wife and kids, he's leaving a wife and kids at home. See, we worship And that worship fills us with courage to be faithful to God in the real stuff of life. Maybe this is why Jesus sang his way to the Mount of Olives. He sang what he believed about God right before he was gonna be tested on it. He was doing worshipful warfare on his way to his greatest temptation and trial. Where he's going to be tempted to believe that the Father had turned his face away and the Father had abandoned him and the Trinity was torn asunder. He's going to be tempted to believe that as the full weight of our sin was pressed upon him. But he had to remember the steadfast love of the Lord is Forever he will not forsake me the same is true for us one of our greatest weapons against the enemy of our souls is singing scriptural truths about god remember we are in a war but most of the time i mean sometimes it's flesh and blood right with things like that, that's flesh and blood. Real evil people trying to do evil things requires flesh and blood to act. But Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10.3, it's not always flesh and blood. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power, look at this, to destroy strongholds, Destroy. They're violent. They're, they're, it's warfare language here. We destroy, but what do we destroy? It's not talking about people. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, Christianity does not expand through flesh and blood domination. We expand across the globe by preaching the gospel and free people believe the freedom of the gospel. That's how we expand. Islam, they can take it by force and they can take it by sword. That's not, the, that's not how we fight our battles. Our battles are primarily up in our head. Thoughts, opinions, philosophies, lies. See, the enemy of our soul, Satan, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, He uses lies, faulty philosophy, unbiblical worldviews, ungodly arguments, untethered emotions, all in order to tempt us to doubt our faithful God. The number one weapon we have in this warfare is the truth of the word of God And one of the best ways to memorize the word of God so that you have it when you need it is to sing it. Sing it until you memorize it. So that when your enemy comes in like a flood, you can lift up a standard against him. It's one of the most biblical pictures in the The heinous history of our country with slavery was the African-American slaves who could sing while being beaten, while being mistreated. They would sing scripture in the fields. you, You could literally take our bodies, but you can't take our souls. This is also why When we come in on Sunday morning, we have to be very careful about which songs we sing. See, too many so-called modern worship songs sing more about us than God. Just about us, our feelings and our desires and our wishes. Listen, we don't need to sing more about our feelings and our thoughts and our desires. Turn on the radio for that. We need to sing God's word. We need God's story to reinterpret our stories the way that we're living in this life. We need to sing big God theology. We need songs that get our eyes off of ourself and onto the Lord, Yahweh, our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his name. Our hope is in him. We want to sing about him. So we sing because God created us to sing to him. We sing because God's words and God's work demands it. And we sing because we are in a spiritual battle and singing to God is worshipful warfare that can fill us with courage now and help us remain faithful to God in the midst of our conflict. Let me tell you this, the more pressure we feel out there, the more persecution we feel out there, the darker it feels out there, the more hot. Our worship needs to be in here. The more God centered our worship needs to be in here. We have been fighting the fight of faith all week long. We often come in here beat up, wounded, and exhausted. We might feel like we are sitting in a really dark spot. And what do we do? We lift up our voices and we sing together. Here's what we sang together this morning. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. Praise God. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold. My shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valleys, he will lead. Oh, the night has been won and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I but through Christ in me. Yeah, there's catchier songs out there. We could do the Macarena if we needed to, (laughs) right? But this is meat. This is what hungry people need to feast on. This is what warriors need before going out to battle. Truth, white, hot truth set you on fire and send you out here with courage to live your normal life to the glory of God in the midst of a culture that's trying to shame you and trying to make you feel guilty and try to say how ridiculous you are. That's what we need. Woo! Preach, boy! Trying, all right, trying. Let me pray for us. Father God, your word, your word brings dead men to life. Your your word makes weak men and women into warriors. Your word and Christ in us, the hope of glory, brings courage to discouraged souls. And so our hope this morning is not in our own strength, our own wisdom, our own power. We trust not in our government. We trust not into our our military might and all of the stuff. We don't trust in that. We trust in the Lord who governs history. We trust in you. And we ask that you would help us be faithful to your word in this day and age today. Father, I pray that you brought courage to discourage souls this morning. And I thank you that we get to come to you now and we get to open our hands and you get to feed us. We get to take the bread represents the body of Christ and the cup which represents the blood of Christ and we get to eat it and remember Jesus' death and resurrection in our place and we also get to look forward to the next time we eat with him in a flesh and blood reality when we sit down in the new heavens and new earth when all of his enemies have been conquered and everything has been made good, right and true and he he restores all things, he restores all things in heaven and earth back into right relationship with the father and we get to sit down and sup with him. We long for that day, Lord Jesus. Would you feed our souls now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.